Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Natureversity Podcast. Today, I am joined by Shannon Brown of Ecosystems Regeneration Artisans, based out of San Marcos, Texas, just down the ways from us here in Austin. And Shannon, we're really excited to have you on. Thanks for being here. Oh, yeah. I'm happy to be here. Nature Diversity does great work, so... Yeah, it's good to be here. We we try. We're just uh, I, I always tell folks like you, um, you know, we do these like exit and build summits. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people trying to get off the the system. Right. And this is kind of sounds like what we're both into. And I always say, who are you going to pass the baton off to? Exactly. The kids. The kids. So I, I feel um, honored to hear you say that we're doing good work. And so I want to know. What uh, you, you tell us your name and who you are and what you're involved with. Let's just get some introductions out of the way. Yeah, so I'm Shannon Brown. I'm the founder of Ecosystem Regeneration Artisans, and the core of our mission is to create good habitat for wildlife, uh, good habitat for people, so that we can have that wildlife around us. Following that biophilia hypothesis, people do better when we have that robust life around us, plant life, animal life, insect life even. And the other core of our mission, and that's the foundation of all of everything else, is taking good care of our water, which is especially important here in Central Texas because we have these cycles of drought and flash flooding and we're going to run into some serious water problems. And there's a lot of ways that individuals... You know, whether you have a, you know, little backyard or, you know, live in an apartment or, you know, even if you have some acres around you, there's ways to contribute back to the ecosystem and ways to contribute water back into our groundwater supply. And that's the core uh, mission and why I started doing this. Very cool. And did you grow up like being outside like what was kind of childhood like for you where'd you grow yeah. up so i'm from uh seabrook texas El Lago uh is the name of the neighborhood and it's right next to nasa so a lot of science in that community and when i was very young we still had a 40 acre forest behind our house and it was amazing we would go out there and pick blackberries my dad and i and there were crawfish that would flow out down the storm drain when it would rain because there was a wetland back there. Sure. And that was so cool to see and experience that nature behind us. And then at one point, that land got bought for development. It was mm. clear cut. Uh, the wetland was filled in. And that was when I was about eight. And it, it broke my heart. Like that was... Yeah. We had hawks and rosette spoonbills, ibises, all of this life, and then it was just gone, yeah. right? And so what that did for me was it inspired me to say, well, like, the animals went away when the forest went away. Yeah. We have to, I was mad that that happened, Um. And then I started asking these questions of like, well, where are those animals going to go? They don't have anywhere else to go. What can we do to put back a space where they can be? And with that line of questioning and my mom being who she is and being really involved in my upbringing and encouraging me to like ask those questions and use that as a way to make change, um, the 
elementary school that I went to, we ended up building this habitat for wildlife behind it. It started with two ponds that were built in an area where we had like a water pooling issue and there were always mosquitoes there and it was just nasty turf grass and it was just, it was not a great place to be. No one went out there. And then we worked with a group of master naturalists, a a group of master gardeners and a local landscaper, uh, Mark Fox, who was a good mentor for me. And then um, Margaret Frick was another of my favorite mentors, and I ended up calling it Margaret Sweatland because she was the one who had the ecology background of working with those native wetland plants and getting those beautiful plants growing in that pond so that space transformed from being lifeless to full of life. There were tree frogs, pickerel weed with these gorgeous purple flowers, a button bush covered in butterflies and bees. And so to just within a year see that space and what a group of people coming together can do to give life space in just, you know, a little teeny tiny, I mean, the space would be, you know, maybe the size of the first floor of a house, you know, that's it. Yeah. And to just be able to go there and see that, wow, they, if you build it, they will come. Like, look, there's a great blue heron that came to this space. And every day walking out there after school, it's like, what are we going to see today? There's magic in that. And so that was a really core experience for me. And from there... I kept volunteering to help build habitats. Uh, I volunteered with a wildlife rehabilitator for a while, which involved a lot of uh, shoving soggy cat food down the throats of baby birds when they would, you know, lose their parents, fall out of their nests. And that all kind of brought home for me this idea that, like, I mean, we can help the wildlife by, you know, raising the baby birds on their own, but it's so much better if their parents have a good place to nest. Yeah. They have a good shelter. They have good food, they have good water, and good places to raise their young, and we can support that so that we don't have to step in and do like that emergency support all the time, and it's about building healthy spaces, and when I looked around my neighborhood as a kid, it was so different than the woods that had been right there. Mm -hmm. The plants were all wrong, it didn't have what it needed to support the life there, and so that kind of brought me around to this way of thinking of like, well, we can choose what plants we put in our yard. Like why not put in the plants that the birds need for shelter, for food? Mm-hmm. Why not put in places where if you want to see frogs, make good frog habitat. If you want to see hummingbirds, plant things that hummingbirds want to eat. Right. You know, yeah. plant stuff that they're going to be attracted to and that you don't have to you know, keep changing the water of a hummingbird feeder every day. The plant's going to do that and you're giving them the healthiest possible food because that's what they evolved with. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I come from. That's beautiful. I admire people who feel some kind of connection to nature and then are actively willing to do something about it other than just go complain that seems to be the go-to thing and it seems to be you know like um I, th- I you know Greenpeace really got us started I feel a long time ago but they were active they were they were out there doing things and then I think people started seeing oh well, we can fund through nonprofit 
money and all these things. But what you're doing is totally different. You're not out there, you know, uh, just uh, raking in cash to, to pay off a big, a lot of those people who sit at the top of those things, they're not environmentalists, they're investors. They're, you know, so you're doing grassroots work at, in your local bioregional areas. And yeah. that is just, um, I'm an absolute admiration, Shannon. So thank you again for sitting down and chatting with us. So that that story you just told um, is very powerful. And how old were you when that experience took place? So I was eight when the forest was cut down. Yeah. Um, and then when you put the pond in. Uh, I was, that was the same year. Yeah. It was like pretty quick. We hopped on and like made that happen. And then. And so you got to high school and was nature still just this thing you were just, were you studying plants and learning birds and all of that? Like, were you kind of doing the, I don't know what they call it. the uh, <laughs> As most teenagers do, I had a little bit of a rebellious trajectory sure, for a while. I did. Um, kind of yeah. stepped away from nature for a bit, wanted to be a writer. Yeah. Um, got really into doing that for a while, but, um, and after college, you know, I studied both biology and English to kind of fulfill both paths that I wanted and my parents wanted. And then... <laughs> which one was which? <laughs> was the well, biology the, you? Um, kind of. Um, luckily, I think my parents knew me well enough to know that even though I was a little resistant to that calling that I had had for a long time and continuing to follow that through, um, that it was... It was good to have that science with the the English and that communication skills were really, really key there. So it was kind of a, a melding of uh, two art forms. And I see ecology as a art, basically. That's where the company name comes from, is we're artisans. We're rebuilding ecology, and these are this is a beautiful thing to do, um, walking in that beauty way of knowing that, like, Wherever we put our boots, we can create healthy, lush, thriving spaces. Um, you know, part of that experience of seeing that forest torn down, I, they were using heavy equipment to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I saw all these, you know, big pieces of equipment ripping out trees. And I was like, I hate those things. I hate mm -hmm. those machines. Well, funny enough, circle around to now, I actually operate heavy equipment. Uh-huh. Because it's just what I've come around to is it's just a tool and it depends on whose hand that tool is in, Absolutely. how it's going to be used. That can be used for destruction or it can be used to empower creation for nature, right? So yeah. um, what I use an excavator for is planting trees and digging spaces that'll catch rainwater so that the trees can grow better and faster. And so kind of, you know, flipping that on its head of like, well, this could be, you know, something that's used in a negative way for yeah. the environment. And, okay, no, that tool can be powerful for us to create something positive. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I agree because that sentiment is, again, um, it's starting to catch on more and more. You know, we can use technology in both ways. So it's not technology, the, the pen and the pencil, that's the dangerous thing. It's, it's, it's what we're doing with it. And I thought about that a long time ago. I was in Big Bend and I was just thinking about like pollution. And uh, my buddy Dave, he was like, well, you know, we, 
all drove here together and think about what the magical experience that you're having with all these people. He's like, and gasoline helped do that. And I kind of like had to have this moment of like, oh yeah, you know, it's true. Like this, these technologies we have around us that we know causes destruction. Like it does, so does bring quite a bit of joy and solace in a lot of ways. And so you get out of high school, you're in college, you get out of high uh, college. And now are you still living in uh, Texas this entire time? Did you go to Texas state? Um, so I went to Southwestern university, North of Austin. Um, I used to, when I was a kid think that, Oh, I hated Texas. Cause I hated the development that was happening oh. around Houston. That was just, uh, and then I got out here and I was like, wow, the hill country, it's so beautiful. A lot of people get here and have the, like, oh, wow, like, look at this crystal clear water. Like, look at these hills. Look at all the life out here, the wildflowers. And so I kind of fell in love with Texas again a little bit when I came over here. And then after college, I thought, well, I'm going to go travel around and see what this country is like. So I packed myself into a minivan and traveled around um, Washington State to Washington, D.C., Texas to Maine, the whole... Whoa. Um, Where was the first place you went? So I beeline for uh, Colorado. Nice. <laughs> Pagosa Springs area. Oh, yeah. Uh, Black Canyon of the Gunnison Beautiful. was one of my favorite places. And it was a lot of camping in national forests and just kind of being with nature, reading books, observing things, taking pictures, seeing all the different forms of life throughout the country and meeting different types of people. And, you know, there were a lot of places where I was like, wow, the community here surrounding environmental activism, surrounding mm. environmentalism is so much stronger than it is in Texas. But I did end up coming back. Um, a boyfriend of mine at the time, his dad was dying of pancreatic cancer, and we were in a really serious relationship. So I went and lived on their game ranch um, out by Lakey near the Frio River. And that's where I started to fall in love with our native bunch grasses that I hadn't seen before. This ranch, they had restored it in the 1960s and put native grass seed back by airplane. Um, it was really, really cool. And it was, you know, I had been into ecology. I had been into plants for a really long time since my childhood. And no one had ever talked to me about these native grasses at all. Never mentioned and I saw them in the fall. There was this rust red color on the fields from the little blue stem grass. And the seeds were just glowing in the setting sunlight. And I was just like, it's so beautiful. What is this? Why haven't I seen this before? Like, what is going on? And I found out that they had done a lot of work to restore that land. And the native prairie is one of the world's most endangered ecosystems. Less than 1% of that remains because no one really sees the value of that grass. And that helped me put two and two together as well, like how that underappreciated, humble piece of the ecosystem is really missing in a lot of places, and we just can't see it because we don't know what it was supposed to look like in the first place. It hasn't looked like it once did that prairie ecosystem hasn't been here for so many generations that we don't even know what we've lost anymore and so that was kind of heartbreaking and then 
I stumbled across um, the book Water from Stone, which is about the Bamberger Ranch. And funny enough, the two fam- the family that the ranch I was living at, their grandfather was a contemporary of Bamberger way back when they were wow. when he was getting started. And that's where their idea to reseed their ranch with these native grasses came from and build the lakes just like David Bamberger did. So anyway, I'm reading this book, Water from Stone, and the first chapter is called The Grass Trail, and it's got the best description I think I've ever read of how those grasses help rainwater sink down into the soil, which is just phenomenal, right? You're slowing water that's falling from the sky it's catching on that grass and then it's percolating down into the ground and it's helping keep the springs flowing and I was just like whoa the invasive introduced grasses that are everywhere they don't have that same root system they don't serve the same function in the ecosystem as our native grasses that have disappeared do and what happened with the Bamberger land, just a quick synopsis of that story, is 5,500 acres of bone-dry land. And what he did was he started to put back the native grasses, and he started to create lakes to catch water. And the springs started trickling back out of the what? hills. It was completely no. dry. Now he has lakes with cypress trees, and it's... A you imagine just creating a Krause Springs type environment, bro? Oh. Yeah, and so that's the, the vision is like, wait, we can do that? We have the ability as people yeah. to do that. We don't have to be like clear-cutting the forest. Holy we can cow. be putting the ecosystem back in a functional way. We don't have to be desertifying things. We don't have to be having a drying effect on the area around us. We don't have to be having a warming effect. We can have a cooling effect. We can put more water back into the groundwater supply. We are, we have the tools, we have the technology, we have the capability and the creativity to move ourselves in that direction. If we can imagine that we can and need to. Um, so, uh, water from stone, there's a short film about it. I cry every time I watch it. It's like eight minutes and just the story of, how he did that, and he's been such an inspiration for Central Texas of a model of how we can rehydrate our landscapes, how we can get our springs flowing when they've disappeared. And um, that's particularly important here in Austin, in San Antonio, where we do a lot of work, because the creeks and rivers are drying up. Um, A friend of mine who grew up here in Austin was like, yeah, I tried to take my friend down to this creek swimming hole that we used to go to, and it was a wet year. It was like 2020, um, I think it was 2021 that we were having this conversation. And she's like, and there wasn't any water there. It's like the Twin Falls area. Gone. I'm not sure. I can't remember exactly which one, but she had lost her childhood swimming hole because yeah. everything's drying up here. And I was like, yeah, you know, it, it has a lot to do with all of the building practices and we're shedding water off of the land from the hilltops all the way to the Valley. river valleys, yeah. there's an opportunity to slow water down, spread it out, sink it into the soil, and then it will come out in those springs when we, you know, those crevices in the rock that trickle water magically. Like, we could have those continue to flow if we were putting the water into the ground, but instead the building practice has been get the water out of here, right. get it gone, send it downstream. 
and then you have flash flooding and then you have drought. It's a broken water cycle, but yeah, we see it in Austin. Yeah. Almost annually. Yeah. And it's, it's scary because, um, the other inspiration for me to start this business was seeing what happened to Wimberley, uh, in 2015, the Memorial day flood, the Halloween flood, um, that just huge wall of water ripping through town, snapping cypress trees in half, like their toothpicks, ripping houses off their foundations, uh, you know, I worked with tree folks for a while doing reforestation on the Blanco, trying to plant back the next generation of trees and talking to those homeowners who had lived through that horrifying experience. It's like, we need to do this work of caring for our water better for the sake of our trees, for the sake of ourselves, so that we have fun places to recreate in our <laughs> creeks, but also just to be Stewards. Stewards and help protect our downstream neighbors. Like, no one wants to have 10 feet of water come up in their home. And the downstream effect of not paying attention to where your water is going when it hits your roof, hits your driveway, it just goes, it goes away, right? Well, it's that journey of a raindrop is traveling along the roof, along the driveway, down into the storm drain. That storm drain is just putting that water out into a creek and river with no filtering whatsoever in most cases, and it's all happening so fast. You've got thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of homes that are all shedding huge amounts of water, and that has an effect for downstream communities, and it's also, it cuts us off from a valuable resource. Why would we, in such a dry place, push water away, right? We want to make friends with that water, keep it close so our plants can thrive. We want our trees to grow quickly so we have shade. We'll keep the water close. Use what rain we have when it comes and don't just let it all run off. Anyway, that's my soapbox. (laughs) No, no, you're you're doing, Shannon, you're doing fantastic. This is beautiful to hear a perspective like this because a lot of people are moving here right now. They're moving to the Texas Hill Country. And they're listening to this, hopefully saying, oh, okay, so now I'm in a new area. I'm sure it's just like when you moved to Colorado originally. It's not like you just you just plant a flag and start doing things your own way. Like a healthy, holistic human would kind of uh, examine the surrounding area and take in what's working, what's not. But you labeling very clearly, hey, these in, I don't want to say invasive, but these plants um, that aren't necessarily supposed to be here. I guess I use the word invasive. Um, they're not helping, you know? And it's not only that, it's the lack of foresight in the development that is all these people moving here, right? And so, yeah, it's it's a travesty to see the destruction, the walls of water. Do you think that the, um, you know, the big bald cypress trees, were th- those were cut down for logging along the Pedernales River, correct? Yeah, um, there was a time when a lot of the cypress trees were cut down. Um, in fact, the trees that we think are like really, really old, cypress trees grow really, really fast. A lot of them were clear cut in the 1850s, and the ones that we see now are from after that time. Right. That's what I was doing some research on. So, for instance, when you go down to Paternalis, um, if you go to a great examples, Rymer's Ranch, along that river, you walk the river and you notice there's no shade. Mm, it's just yeah. these gigantic stumps for as far as the eye can see. And do you think that 
is contributing to these flash floods? Because do, do bald cypresses, could they help? If all those things were still there, would it help by sucking up so much water with the junipers and compound and all that stuff? Yeah, so there, there's a couple of things there, right? So it's great to have trees over our rivers to slow down the evaporation, especially a limestone bottom river like the Blanco River. It's evaporating way faster now than ever because it's missing those cypress trees that helped to shade it. The trees do help with cycling the water up and down into the springs from the groundwater up to the surface and the surface water down. It's really magical. If you can find a cypress tree to stand under, sometimes when you're standing in the water, you can actually feel a cold spot like right next to it and that's oh. where the water yeah you is feel actually, that Krause. yeah it's yeah. coming up along the cypress roots to the surface wow. right which is so cool but the other thing that i think a lot of people miss is when we go to a river park our preconceived notion of what a park should look like usually involves like a lot of mowed grass and then some big trees well like i was talking about the grass before the Grasses have a very close symbiotic relationship with the trees. And part of the reason that so many trees fall over during floods is because the ecosystem around the tree isn't fully supporting it. So if you've got, say, turf grass that has six inches to a foot of root depth, maybe, that's not going to create a very good anchor for a tree in a flood when compared to, say, one of our native bunch grasses, which one of my favorites is called Eastern Gamma Grass, and it gets like eight feet tall, um, and its root mass goes down 12, 15 feet or more, and those fibrous fishnet-like roots hold that cypress tree down in a big flood, and as the leaves of that grass sway, it slows the water down. I've observed on the San Marcos River that the... Wild rice that grows there are endemic, endangered wild rice, which is so cool. When it sways in the water, the water slows down a bit, and the sediment falls out, and that's helping keep the river looking clean and clear and beautiful. And so, so cool. keeping the grass in the <laughs> ecosystem, yeah, and that grass is going to help with flash flood waters, right, slowing them down and helping those trees stay anchored and rooted into the ground. So I'd say, like, we want to have the trees to keep the river shaded and help the water come up from underneath. And we want to have the grasses to help put the water back down into the soil and to protect the trees. So it's yeah. this beautiful network. And so often people don't acknowledge that the grass has a role there at all. So they just want, you know, really short St. Augustine or Bermuda grass turf that doesn't provide hardly any ecosystem benefit. Yeah. I think a lot of the Austin, you know, development that I see, it's, they're not doing that as much. You know, some of these new areas that they're developing and building, like they are kind of planting them down, but I'll, I'll, let me just maybe critique what I just said, is the areas that they're redeveloping, they've, they've been developed, but now they're putting in new style houses, new like retro, modern, but I don't see a lot of the St. Augustine grass. They still have like the native sunflowers and different things like on the east side. I see that a lot. So that that gives me hope that oh, yeah. something's happening. And what about in um, San Marcos? Has there been a lot of shift down there to kind of get more into this 
thought process of the bioremediation concept? Yeah, so um, San Marcos is a river town. We're all about our river the same way people are all about Barton Springs here. Oh, yeah. Um, and there is a clear understanding of we need to take care of the sacred resource. There's a lot of developments that we're fighting, um, like the Smart Terminal, which has now been renamed Access Terminal. It's supposed to be a large industrial development to um, have a lot of goods transported from that hub. and it's Like an Amazon warehouse shipping facility? Um, imagine Kinda like, like a bunch of Amazon warehouses all together. Uh, this is, we're talking like a couple thousand acres. Geez. I can't remember the exact and figure off the top of my head, but we're... E- Huge, uh, yes, east of I thirty five. Okay, yeah, and so Martindale area. Martindale, no, exactly. yep. don't say that. Yeah, the no, Yakona River, y'all. Um, let's fight. <laughs> yeah, so putting that plug out there, like you know, let's let's don't get some attention it. on that um, because it is going to be placed right next to the San Marcos River. It's going to contribute more flooding, more pollution. But uh, going back to what you said about some development doesn't have to be harmful. Like, if we had that, like, oh, no, like, no, we have to fight this thing, this horrible yeah. thing is happening, right? Well, thinking about how to be responsible with what happens when a bunch of people move here, it's, like, not right for us to say, no, nobody else can come here. The right. door's closed after me. No, don't, don't come here. Um, but we can be thoughtful and responsible about how we do this. And I think what you were pointing at a minute ago was that some of these housing developments are paying attention to how the water is handled when it runs off. It's going to go into a retention pond or a detention pond and hold there, or they have swales to catch this water. And that series of techniques is called green stormwater infrastructure or excuse me, low impact development. Those are two terms that are used for it. And the idea being, okay, we can't necessarily stop development. Right. Though I think we should try and stop the smart terminal because that's huge and ridiculous. But there are ways of having people have housing, right? It's important for people to have a place to live. But we can choose how we do that going back to like being hopeful and creating life around us we can decide well i want my yard to be a place for wildlife i want it to be an oasis i don't want to be contributing to flash flooding i want to be contributing to our groundwater supply and just flipping that on its head a little bit if i'm going to live here i'm going to do what i can to give back to this place because it is beautiful and it should stay beautiful Right. Yeah, it should. You know, the the other thing, the big, I don't want to derail what we're talking about in Martindale, but the other thing is this whole, I guess, Live Nation with Zilker Park. Mm-hmm. That's also taking place. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm right there with you. I want, I want the development to be understood in the big picture, meaning why do people go to San Marcos? Well, obviously it's a college town, but beyond that, it is that river. It's beautiful. I actually just got off it yesterday. I did six miles. My my legs are torched. I don't know if you saw oh, them, but nice. I was on a kayaking trip. Um, it was a blast. We just went from uh, about the Martindale entrance, I guess, there over at Shady Grove. Yeah. And then went all the way down to their exit point, too. But it's beautiful. If you've never kayaked or canoed or gotten on that river, you would be amazed to know when you have 110 heat 
degree indexes in this part of Texas, <laughs> jumping in that water is the most refreshing thing. And just like you said, it's the it's the hallmark of San Marcos, in my opinion. Um, many things are, but that river is so beautiful. And uh, yeah, I don't I don't want any type of development that's going to knowingly contribute to its downfall as a point of interest for that place. Because that's what I think might happen with this Live Nation Zilker contract is if they go through with this and they suddenly, you know, make getting to Barton Springs a challenge and all that, it's, it's, you're losing the soul. Like that's what people are coming here for. I would imagine beyond the benefits of their business and infrastructure or whatever they're doing, but it's, uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. I just want some, some thoughts about I think the best way to say it is we don't want to borrow the future from our grandkids or something like that I remember that that is a quote is we're stealing uh resources from our great grandkids to feed our kids something like that and yeah I, I want us to be thinking thinking about that so what what really was the moment when, so first of all, I'm sorry, when did you start ERA? And for yeah. those of you still just maybe um, listening to this again, as a reminder, ecosystems, regeneration artisans in San Marcos, Texas, we're going to refer to it ERA from here on out. When did it begin? Uh, so 2017, I had that kind of, well, before 2017, I had been working with tree folks. I had seen the destruction on the Blanco River and I had learned about how we can use these very simple landscaping techniques to slow the water down, spread it out, sink it into the soil, which helps with not having that massive flash flooding and also helps keep our springs flowing so that Barton Springs still has water in the future, so that the San Marcos River still has water in the future. Um, Blanco's drying up rapidly. Um, and the Blanco feeds part of the San Marcos. It does, yes. And uh, most of the San Marcos, though, spring out of that one area of that park. I forget where it's at yeah. in, in San Marcos. It is spring-fed. Um, the springs come up in various points all along it, but we do have the major, uh, one of the largest freshwater springs in the United States is um, at the headwaters of the San Marcos River, and it's protected. Uh, you can't kayak there without using one of their kayaks on a special guided event. Uh, they they keep it very sacred, yeah. right? It's our sacred sure. springs. That's it's what it feeding is. everything downstream. Yeah. So um, and yeah. so the idea was um, we have to protect that. It can't it can't ever dry up. That would just be tragic. And then the other side of that being, I've seen the San Antonio River, oh. which used to look like the San Marcos that- River. It used to be as clean and clear as the San Marcos River, and now you can't swim in it. You can't touch it. It's the Brackenridge Park used to be a swimming hole, just like the headwaters of the San Marcos River. The incarnate word blue hole used to bubble up out of the ground, and it's dry. Again, I cry when I go there every time because what we've lost, San Antonio lost it. Yeah, We can't let Austin lose Barton Springs. We can't let San Marcos lose our sacred spring. So what it became about was seeing that there's a simple solution to these problems of flash flooding and drought and springs drying up, and we can all be part of that with our yards. Yeah. There is hope. We can do this. We don't need to wait for somebody else to come save it for us. No, just, like, Put the work in and put the investment in to make it right in the space that you have control over um, is kind of the f- 
fundamental philosophy of why I started ERA is to slow the water down, spread the water out, sink the water in, and have it here for generations to come. So we have wildlife, we have water, happy people. Um, that's that's the core mission there. Um, are y'all nonprofit? No. So we are a landscaping company. So okay. we. We work for our money. Uh, We operate just like any other landscaping company would where um, the people who want us to come help them make an oasis in their yard, they come have us come out. We go do a consultation. We understand what's going on with their watershed as it is now, how we can improve that, how we can build what are called rain gardens to have a really attractive feature that is like a xeriscape, but it's beyond xeriscaping because xeriscapes just conserve water, but the rainscapes that we build are actively regenerating water and putting it back into the soil, back into the aquifer. Um, And so... So yeah, yeah, let's let's talk about that. So you have a, an opportunity for people to learn, um, which I think you refer to as new rain gardens, correct? Mm-hmm. And so do you want to share a little bit more about that? Yeah, so... Rain gardens are a relatively new concept. Um, basically, what a rain garden looks like is a bowl that is dug into the ground, and when it rains, that bowl fills up with water, and that water stays in that bowl for usually less than 48 hours so it doesn't breed mosquitoes. And over that time, the water sinks down into the soil profile, and it creates what's referred to as a swale plume. This is basically another term for some of the permaculture principles of berms and swales. A rain garden has a basin, a.k.a. a swale, and it has a berm. And the whole goal is to catch as much rain as we possibly can so that it stays on that land and can help the trees grow. And so I mentioned briefly the swale plume. The water that sits in that basin of the rain garden or swale after a rain event, when it sinks into the soil, it doesn't go away. It's just become underground water. So we've got that water flowing underground, you know, Mm -hmm. in that song. Um, And that's the idea is like get that water into the ground so the trees are using it because when we have a big flash flooding rain, if you don't catch that water, boom, storm drain, down into the creek and river, the creek and river rises 20 feet, and whoosh, it's headed toward the Gulf of Mexico, and usually it's carrying sediment load, it's carrying heavy metals, oil drippings, all kinds of nasty pollution from our roads, and putting that into the creeks and rivers. So yeah. if we slow it down and use that water when it's clean on our in our yards, that's beneficial for life. I remember that Memorial Day flood and the amount of debris that I saw. I think they shut down William Cannon. I don't know if y'all are familiar with the, the Austin area, but that's on the east side over there of 35. And it's, it's a high bridge. I mean, that thing's probably 30, 40 feet up. So that river, I guess it's Onion Creek. That's yeah, that the, was Onion, Onion Creek. Creek. Yeah. That thing came <laughs> like, whoa, when you're shutting down William Cannon that way east, that's a major 40 feet wall of water. So when Shannon says walls of water, she's not messing around these things. And then it did it, what, four months later in October, six yep. months later in October, in October again. Um, which is our Halloween flood. And then the next year did it again. And I remember my dad always like uh, 
saying to me things because I was around when 2011 was going on 2012 we had a major drought Mm -hmm. no water 2009 2010 I remember seeing like what do they call them sometimes islands or something like that they'd sometimes show up in Lake Travis (laughs) and I just thought everybody's real estate's gone it's all over it's like, that's it. All those people who had boats and talks and everything. Not that I was like the only concerned about that, but I, I drove by there a lot and I would go out to Pace Bend Park and I just thought about like, man, like just how unfortunate it would be from that perspective of like, I just really wanted to live along a river and now it's completely gone. And my dad was like, dude, don't be joking around. It's going to rain one time. It's going to all flash flood and go crazy. And I was like, no, it'll take months and years. And he's like, no, it'll just take one day. And then it started raining and it did not stop. I had an infographic, actually. It said we could have filled up California's reservoirs four times. Four times with that amount of water. Yeah, it was crazy. It really adds up. So your average roof, let's say you have 2,000 square feet of roof space, right? Well, for every 1,000 square feet of roof, that's 623 gallons of water per one inch of rain. So a 2,000 square foot roof, you're going to end up having like 1,200 gallons of water coming off that in just one inch of rainfall. So when you have these events where we get four inches of rain in just one hour, well, that's a huge volume of water. You multiply that by 1,000 homes in a neighborhood, no wonder we've got walls of water ripping through towns. Yeah, um, it, it's it true. It adds up. It's the the order of magnitude, the scale of it. Like for me, when I started to put two and two together on that, my mind was just absolutely blown. It's like, yeah, all of that water could have been a resource that was in our groundwater supply. It could have been a resource, and instead, it was a waste and a destructive waste. Right. And that was that's not. That's not the desired future that we're going for, right? So let's do something about it. Let's fix it. It it is unfortunate. It's a double whammy. We're we're losing the cost benefits and we're causing chaos in the process. And I'm just hopeful that people coming on board now into places like, you know, the hydrogeological systems for Austin and all that, I hope they have that mindfulness to say, like, this is why but man you know it's shocking is um my buddy nico he used to have that job he might actually still be there i think i think he might have retired but he told me that like the amount of funding that you get to do these studies is so it's just not there and yet he's saying hey you know these um these these systems of water that are feeding like i think there was one uh, it was called cold springs it's just to the left of the exit of barton springs um it's beautiful and uh to not have any thought of how to protect these things again so i just want to get back to era stuff here so uh some landscape design and installation is what you talked about is that one of the things that y'all are doing the most of right now and how does that look like what specific things are people requesting to be built perhaps on their acreage or on their front back side yard how does all that look some of the projects you've been working on um okay so we just got done with our busy season um we don't plant stuff when it gets this hot so in may june july we and august and for the first half of september we try to do our design work then so that when we're in the ideal planting season which ideal planting season for our native plants is between september 15th and through the fall and into the spring 
the closer you get to May, the hotter and drier it is, the more water it takes to keep plants alive. So that's why we've structured our process and sure. timeline following the seasons. Yeah. Also, I don't want... I don't want the plants to suffer, but I don't want myself and my team to suffer either. With, Smart thinking. Um, you know, <laughs> heat index of 110. Um, but Shout so, out to the campers out there right now. <laughs> so the, um, but you were asking, you know, what do our projects look like? So what it looks like is we put together a design over the summer. We review that with our client. We say, oh yeah, like this is how we're going to catch water on your land. This is how where we're going to put rain gardens. And here's how we can put in a privacy screen of plants to help you with your privacy needs. Here's how we can um, put in a fruit tree here so that you can have fresh peaches if you want that or fresh figs. Or uh, if you want to support uh, monarch butterflies, then let's get some milkweed that's native to this area so that those monarch caterpillars can have a host plant that they are you know they're very specific they only eat milkweed so if you don't have milkweed you don't have monarch caterpillars which means you don't have monarch butterflies so what we do is understand what our clients goals are and what they what type of wildlife do they want to see do you want to see songbirds hummingbirds do you want to see butterflies do you like native bees you know and then how do we build an ecosystem that brings in that life that you want to see? Let's create an oasis. And how do we look at the amount of water coming off of your roof or coming off of the land around you and use that in a good way? Uh, some people call us when they have serious drainage flooding issues. Uh, we had one lady in San Antonio who had uh, 12 acres draining into her backyard. We did a watershed analysis for her to find out how much water we're dealing with. 12 acres of water is coming into her backyard, and it's flooding her back porch every time it rains. And we're like, well, yeah, it's 12 acres it's of a neighborhood that adds up. Like, you're in the path of all of this water. Okay, what can we do about that, right? We're not going to change the whole neighborhood, but we right. can change your yard. So what we did is we dug out those bowls of the rain gardens, like I talked about, those basins, and created places where the water could go. And we routed it around her, We, you know, places to catch it, capture the water first. But if we've caught all that we can catch and it's still raining, well, making safe pathways for the water to go around her house. And then, unfortunately, yes, it's going to go to the storm drain, but let's try and catch that first two inches of rain if we can, or, you know, just the first inch, however much we can possibly physically fit that water in that space. And the plants thrive on that you know you see the growth in these plants and we go from something that's like a hole in the ground with some mulch and some rocks when we start and then we've got like little itty bitty tiny baby plants in there six weeks later it's this like lush place full of blooms and birds and hummingbirds and I personally get to, you know, experience that now. We decided that, um, you know, the cobbler's kids should have shoes, so we built some at our own home down in San Marcos, and it's just been so much fun to watch. Every day I go out and I have my coffee in the morning or my tea, and I'm looking at, oh, wow, immature painted bunting Yeah, came and just ate some seeds off of grass right in front of me. And those birds are rare and they're shy and they're colorful. And we have a nesting pair now that we've built that infrastructure 
that green stormwater infrastructure, that oasis, that place that has what they need, we get to have them around us. Um, and it's so cool. If for those who don't know about painted buntings, definitely Google that up real quick. Um, painted bunting bird, they are stunning. Yeah, there are a wide variety of colors. The males especially. Females are a little drab with their color, but the males are like, what is that? Who made that bird? Um, very so lucky cool. to see them out there. Um, so you're... You're helping people through this landscape design and installation. And do y'all partner with any other organizations and people who come in and say, yeah, like, I think this, this would help. Are people trying to do a multifaceted thing in any way? Meaning like we're, we're trying to do a garden. We're trying to do a pond. We're trying to do a, you know, get our springs to come back, potentially uh, improve our native grasslands. And um, what's been one of the biggest projects that y'all have worked on? Yeah, so uh, just recently this June, I said we usually like to be out of the field by then, but we had a great opportunity come up out in Vanderpool um, digging a food forest, the earthworks for a food forest. So there was this garden space at Spiral Dance Ranch. Uh, they have retreats and have a holistic um, community very cool experience out there that's very cool where's that at vanderpool vanderpool well technically it's lakey but it's oh. on the vanderpool sure. side it's right next to uh lost maples State oh okay Park. so way out in the hills sure you know it's beautiful out there it's so be so beautiful so we were staying out there and we were digging these earthworks for about two and a half weeks um we probably would have done it a little sooner um and quicker but we had a flash flooding rain happen as we were working. So we actually got to see those earthworks for the food forest fill up. So the basins that catch the rainwater, Whoa. they oh. were completely full. Perfect. We got to see it all in action and it was just so exciting. So that was one of our bigger projects. Um, it's like pretty sizable couple acres of garden to plant fruit trees in and, um, you know, support that community with food. Now we've got cover crops on it for this summer. So doing some of that farm and agricultural scale work has been a direction that we're moving. But primarily a lot of our work is focused on making sure that residential homeowners have an option where they can put back to the water supply as well. Uh, we've done some work with um, Tarrant Regional Water District way up in Dallas doing a design for them for rainscapes. But primarily... You know, a lot of our work so far has been about helping individual homeowners give back to their ecosystem so that they have someone that they can call and say, hey, I want native plants, I want rain gardens, because when I started this company, it was like, well, what, this is a great idea. Who's doing this? You know, who's building these systems? And there's kind of this void. Yeah. And I was like, well, if no one else is doing it, go. I guess I'm going to go do it. Very I'm going to dig that. And um, I was so, just about to say, I'm so surprised that there aren't a billion of those types of yeah. folks out there already. There's just, a few more of us now. Um, you know, Symbiosis Regenerative Systems does really great work, often more on the like larger scale farm and ranch. Um, and yeah. Um, oh, APG and Austin Permaculture Guild. Yeah. yeah, they're great. Yeah, I would love to have them on the podcast as well. All those folks, because again, I think more people. And th just to say that in particular, what you're doing about the individual, because so many people, I think they're intimidated by environmental stewardship because they don't know where to start. 
But if they begin, it's just like becoming a naturalist. Um, if you study what's in your backyard first, it gets more enticing and eager to, or, you know, I, I think to then be like, oh, well, now I'm definitely going down the road to the park. You know, now I'm definitely going to the state park. Now I'm going to the national park. So you take it baby steps at a time. And I think what you're doing is perfect for the individual who is considering these things as far as their impact. Because I think the older you get, uh, this has been my experience, the more concerned with it you become, you know, but maybe that's just my altered perception because I obviously work in environmental education, but I am you know, really interested in preserving this, not only for, you know, the future generations, but just the wildlife for Earth itself. Um, and so what are some of the struggles that you face while uh, being kind of an uh, operator of this whole landscape regeneration business? Oh, um, well, that's a fun question. You don't um, have to go too into it, but like, there's um, funding and like, is there staff, you know, like people who are qualified and things like that? Yeah. yeah, well, we're like any small business. We're starting out. We've been around since 2017, but that still makes us just a, you know, six-year-old business. There's only four of us full-time and one part-time to make this happen. Um. And then it's a matter of always finding the right people who want to do the right thing so that we still have work to do. Right, of course. <laughs> we got to make sure we still have work. And there's so much work to be done in Central Texas, right? There's so much to do. A lot of it is just, you know, kind of getting the word out of, hey, this is an option. Did you know rain gardens are a thing? Have you ever heard of rain gardens? Yeah, I mean, most people new don't to me. know don't know what that is. So like you, you do a what now? A rainscape is, well, it's a xeriscape, but it goes beyond water conservation. It's re water regeneration. We're going to put water back. It's not just that we're not using as much. It's that we're actively giving back because fundamentally just conserving where we're at, that's not going to make it. We're not, it's not going to be good enough to just conserve what we have. We have to go beyond that and have to do better than yeah. just conservation. So You had mentioned xeriscaping in there. That seems to be a thing that I'm starting to see a lot of in, you know, the South First, you know, south of uh, 290 area. A lot of those homes are just like cobble and then agave and so oh, tall. Oh, gosh. Yeah, let's yeah. Go, go into okay. it. Get on the soapbox again, on Shannon. Soap let's do it. Again. Here we go. <laughs> okay, so do we want Austin to be a desert? No, of course not. That's not then, what we're known for. Then why would we build deserts? I we need to stop building little deserts everywhere, especially if you'll... <laughs> let me run with this for a second. Go second. for it. We're building these little deserts, and usually underneath all of those rocks to keep nature from bringing weeds and green growth to that space and making it look messy, plastic. It's covered in plastic underneath. And guess what? When the rain hits those rocks and then tries to go through the plastic to get into the soil... No, it's not going in. It's going to run off and create flash flooding. So making these mini deserts exacerbates our runoff problems and exacerbates the urban heat island effect. On a day like today when it's June, I dare anyone to go and put their hand on those rocks for more than three seconds. I dare you. You, you cook won't. some steak on there. Yeah, it's just making a hot space. Why would we want to make it hotter here? It's hot enough. Why would we want to make it drier here? It's dry enough let's go the other way now what we do is technically a form of xeriscaping and there's a lot of ways to do a xeriscape that are really good but to create mini deserts where it's basically a bunch of rocks that are mined from some riverbed somewhere shipped here put 
plastic underneath and then put those rocks on top and have like two or three plants that basically never bloom or bloom a little bit here and there, that's not a healthy ecosystem. What wildlife wants to be in those hot rocks? Uh, scorpions actually do. I was going to uh, say making, small lizards, yeah, tiny lizards, that's tiny it. Lizards Maybe some insects. Yeah, some scorpions. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's a there's a philosophy behind landscaping, right? This isn't just like some guys with like pickaxes and shovels just like, well, we're going to slap in some plants here. No, it's a, well, let's make a, the world a greener, lusher place here in central Texas because we can I think that they just got the wrong idea. I think what <laughs> I think what happened is they looked at all the St. Augustine grasses and they're like, boy, that's a lot of work. And then they were like, what do I have to do to not work a lot? Because there's really no upkeep. You don't have to do anything to agaves and sotols and yuccas and all those. Yeah. Uh, some of those weird, some of them are actually pretty pretty, like the, uh, oh God, what is it? The bird of paradise plant. It yeah, just sits yeah. there in the desert zeriscape thing too and is all pretty orange. But still, yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly that, um, I've always scratched my head and I've always wanted to talk to somebody about it. And like, what are your thoughts on that? Some people find it fantastic. But again, I said the same thing. I was like, dude, I challenge you to walk across that gravel area right. over there, man. It's, it's like you're going to stay it's just in like your radiating heat yeah, off oh into your God. house, isn't it? Yeah, especially I love it when I see it on like the west side of a house and there's no shade <laughs> and the sun is setting. And I'm like, yeah, you just raised your own electricity bill by a third. Yeah, you did. <laughs> or if not more. <laughs> every and day. Every day, every single day. And then the other thing being, um, you mentioned maintenance on those spaces. Yeah. So yes, you're not mowing the grass. And with the style of xeriscape that I do, yes, you're not mowing the grass either because it's full of lush native plants but that you are want supposed to be, to be there. there. Yeah. yeah. But to maintain the clean xeriscape look, one of the big problems with that style is if you're having a landscaper do your maintenance for you, I almost guarantee you that they are not getting down on their knees to pull the weeds that come up. And the weeds do come up regardless. Weed seeds blow in even if you have that plastic down. So... The fastest, easiest way for a traditional landscaping company to help someone maintain a xeriscape, they're going to be spraying Roundup on it. Yeah. They're going to be spraying herbicides all over that. And then you're going to be, oh, there's scorpions in my house because of all of these rocks. And then you're going to spray pesticides all over it. And then we get that big rain event. And all of that herbicide, all of that pesticide that was sitting on those rocks and sitting on top of that plastic that's underneath the rocks, that's going to wash off. It's going to be in Barton Springs. It's going to be in the Colorado River. It's going to be in Onion Creek. It's going to be in whatever the nearest water body is because that's how it works. All of the land around us everywhere at all times is part of some watershed. Every drop of rain goes from hilltop to that nearest water body, that Onion Creek, that Colorado River, the Barton Creek watershed. So... No matter what, we are interconnected with our water. How we treat our land affects our water. And we can do really good things that way, but we can also and have done a lot of damage that way just by not putting two and two together. A lot of people never think about like, oh, the water from my lawn, you know, the water from my roof, the water from my driveway, that's 
it just goes in the storm drain and it's gone. It's invisible. No, it goes to the storm drain and it goes into Onion Creek. And yeah, that's it's going to all come up really fast because it was a huge amount of water from everybody's roof. We collectively can create that negative effect or we can collectively create a really positive effect if we do things differently. And we right. can do that. Do, let's say you were in that moment of your life where you were like, man, I really need to start being considerate of these things. And you were there, uh, let's say around your house, the house you were living in. And this Shannon, who I'm talking to right now came up, what would this Shannon tell little Shannon? So uh, what I'm asking (laughs) is what would you tell the people who might again, be a little bit intimidated by getting involved in their house and how they're, you know, the, the water collection and all that, where it goes. Like, what's something I could do right here at my yeah. house? So what I'd say first is, like, let's just talk about it. You know, have me come out and talk to you. What are you trying to accomplish here? Yeah. Right? What is your main goal? Um, so, for instance, back here, we've got a little, you see that dip? Yeah. That When it rains a lot, I mean, water just comes straight. It turns into a creek. Mm-hmm. But it's not always. Right. Not every time it rains. But when it you know, and the water will eventually start coming up here. Yeah. And now here's where it gets real weird, Shannon. One time it did, and the water started, drink, like, right here on my patio. It started going in there. It never stopped. So I don't know oh. what, I don't know what's going on underneath there. Well, after we finish this, let's go take a look, because now I'm curious. <laughs> it's like, what's going is there a sinkhole under my house, yeah. Shannon? <laughs> is there a sinkhole in my house going to cave in? Let's go. Talk my office around. Gonna let's go be gone. see. Let's go see. I mean, that's that's where it starts. I think is just just being willing to have a conversation about it, like, and sure. discuss it. And you know, that can mean you know me coming out and giving a consultation, or it can also mean if you're like, what is a rain garden? I need to see that to understand it. There's several examples around Austin. Um, Festival Beach Food Forest has a lot of these type of earthworks, and then. Um, uh, ecology action at yeah, all ecology action yeah. there's um it's on the east side over near riverside and grove yeah i'm trying to think of a couple of other places where there are rain gardens um the one texas center that the city of austin's main building they have oh. rain gardens out front of there the city is promoting rain gardens and has rebates for rain gardens you can get discounts on your utility bill for Whoa. doing this okay, okay that's yeah, now we're on. talking to yeah. everybody all of a sudden when money's involved right <laughs> so it's not only good for your wallet it's also good for the environment right we get all these win 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 scenarios right well this is perfect and so we're like for folks listening to this how do we get a hold of you what do we yeah. do so we have a website it's era nativeland.com and that has on it examples of our projects. It has samples of, well, how much does it cost to do this? What are we talking in terms of a ballpark price to get this done? Um, what can you expect when you build a rain garden? What that's, what's that going to be like? We have information like that on there. And we also have information about our native plant nursery in San Marcos. So we have a small scale just in our own backyard Um space where we're growing the native plants that we use for our projects and we open that up to people to come visit and see what a rain garden looks like in real life in person because pictures never do them justice really because you can't hear the birds you can't see the butterflies and it just right it doesn't capture the depth of it 
Um, so we have that space for people to come visit once a month, first Saturday of the month, and experience what a rain garden looks like. And um, some of the past Saturdays we've done this recently, we've had like the painted bunting fly by. And it's exciting because the one lady was like, I think I hear a painted bunting. I was like, that's pretty likely they're around. And sure enough, like five minutes later, we're like, there it is, there it is. So Perfect. getting to experience that. And uh, you can find out about when those sales are and see more pictures on our company Facebook page, which is you know, facebook.com slash eranativeland.com. We also have Instagram. I think the tagline on that is at eranativeland.com. I personally don't do that one um but you know <laughs> no that's good you've got bigger things to be focused on so yeah. i'm the same way i don't handle our social media stuff either um well this has been a lot of fun and i think the folks who've listened to this will hopefully feel a little bit more you know informed around it's not that complicated it can start literally with i guess a shovel digging a rain Thing. But uh, but yeah. having you come out and give them an understanding to what it is <clears throat> their goals are and how they can help you know with the bioremediation. So yeah, there, I would like to say there are some technical components to sure. it. Like you don't want water sitting within ten feet of your foundation. So um, there's just some little key concepts. That's like let's talk, Y'all and I can this? I can give you like some pointers about like if you're going to DIY this. Make sure that you don't make the first five or ten mistakes Yeah, that most people would make doing that. We also offer um, digging for people because the shoveling and the pickaxing is hard work, especially when your soil is heavy clay with limestone raisins yeah. in it. So oh, we do sure. offer just coming out with the heavy equipment, dig the hole for you, and let people DIY the planting, the mulching, adding stone if they want to because... I'm not jealous about planting the plants. I do it enough. And why steal somebody else's joy of building their garden and getting engaged with their hands in the dirt and like really knowing like, yeah, I put that plant there and now look how big it's gotten. Oh yeah. I love that feeling and like yielding jalapeno peppers and plucking them and making them into all kinds of things. Um, last thing is uh, that I wanted to chat with you about was edible plant walks. You do that. I have in the past done that. Yeah. Um, I'd like to do that more, but like I said, we're a group of four or five people, and um, frankly, you know the the uh, the digging yeah, that we've been doing, the time, the time. It's it's a lot of work, you know. The it's pretty hard for me to convince myself to do a plant walk on a Saturday when we've been doing landscaping, and some of those uh. days are, hey, we let's wrap this up today, so we're not you know, come and driving all the way an hour there, an hour back tomorrow. That's less fuel efficient. Let's power through here. Sometimes it's 12 hour days for us doorstep to doorstep in the springtime. But, um, so it's hard work, but it's also, you know, good work. And ultimately I feel really hopeful because every day we're getting, I'm getting to meet new people that are like, yeah, I'm ready to do this. I want to move forward with adding native plants to my yard. I do want to slow the water down, spread the water out, and sink the water into the soil because that that is, water is life here, you know, everywhere, and especially precious right here. So um, it's my clients inspire me to feel hopeful every day because there are people that are taking action to 
rebuild nature better, even when, you know, it's a subdivision. You know, we can make it better. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for being on, and uh, I look forward to having you back on because I know after this, I'm sure it's going to continue to grow. It's been around for many years, and I just want to know what more opportunities that you have and that we could perhaps get involved in. Is there any volunteer opportunities other than going uh, to the first Saturday a month? Um, so because what we do is, um, a business, right? It's, I don't really want to have volunteers. Sure, sure. Because I don't want, I want my guys to get paid really good for the hard work that they do and the technical work that they do. And all of us are, have really incredible diverse backgrounds. Yeah. You know, and I believe that my people deserve to have, you know get paid a living wage and have yeah, a good livelihood from doing that and so I've had some friends who are farmhands and if there's too much volunteering the farmhands end up having less farmhand paid work ah. and so you know volunteering is great but I am careful about like who that's done for right mm-hmm. if it's a f- entity that's kind of a for-profit entity I don't feel like volunteering is necessarily the right path. Sure. Right. So, um, I don't really offer that as an option. I also don't really do unpaid internships. Like I, this, this is work that deserves payment because it's the future. Right. So, um, it should be sustainable living wages. And so, um, I get what you're getting at though, in terms of like how people can engage and connect with us. Um, so we do occasionally go to events um, when the timing is right. Like we've uh, visited at the Sky Earth Gathering. Yeah. And um, there was a Lockhart summer celebration that we were just at. So it's, we kind of, as those opportunities arise, we move toward them. Um, but they can the find th- that stuff on your Facebook updates and exactly. all that. Okay, cool. Exactly. Um, yeah. Upcoming in August is the Own Your Own Universe event where it's a little place out in Martindale. And uh, it'll be talks from a botanist, and I'll be giving a talk. Um, the botanist is Bill Carr, who has a pretty big name in the industry, and um, local music. So there's you know, fun little connection events like that that happen as well. Uh, it's just kind of on a here and there basis as, as they arise. Very cool. Well, once again, thanks so much for being on here because uh, I just enjoy chatting to people who really have passion with what they do in life. And it definitely sounds like you have a lot of passion and enthusiasm. And you've, uh, as all the listeners of this podcast know, you've, you've found your icky guy. You know what that is? <laughs> yes, the Japanese term for what, what yes. the world needs, what's your passion, That's right. what you can have as a career. So, yeah. I think I just absolutely. need to rename this podcast the Icky Guy Podcast. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all about nature. So, yeah. Um, yeah. you could find your passion in anything. I mean, motorcycle maintenance, I suppose, and everything else. But I'm just so enthralled to meet people like you and to have you tell your story because. So many of us are doing such incredible work in this world and we don't get to tell our stories. Sometimes we just, like you said, you're busy. You don't have the time to, but I thank you again for taking the time out of your day and coming here and sharing your story with us. So Shannon, appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. All right, everybody. Y'all have a good one. We'll see you on the next episode. Take care. Bye-bye.